Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Naomi Cunningham, a barrister who has specialized in employment and discrimination throughout her career. Naomi has increasingly focused on the single-sex exemptions in the Equality Act and its interaction with the Gender Recognition Act, as well as its wider implications. She is a director and chair of Sex Matters, the startup campaigning organization calling for clarity, reality, and freedom of speech in law and policy relating to sex and gender. In her spare time, Naomi is an enthusiastic choral singer. I welcome Naomi Cunningham to Savage Minds. The gender ideology landscape has been fed, in my opinion, by two primary entities. We could break one of them down into further, but in the public sectors, you've got government and public advocacy agencies and NGOs or charities that are pushing this agenda. You have the NHS. And aside from these two groups, I also include, and sometimes I give a greater weight to media that has pushed gender ideology to such a degree that I have to wonder if a doctor having a patient come to them saying I'm gender dysphoric has much choice because he or she is facing a patient head on who has been already schooled for years by the wokery of the media. So I'm wondering how you came into the gender ideology discussion, what, as they say, piqued you, Mm -hmm. and what are your thoughts about your initial entry into this and what has changed since then? Um, I think, um, I think the very first thing that, um, that gave me a bit of an inkling, um, of what was going on, um, was a rather sideways routine, um, which I read a review of Alice Drager's Galileo's Middle Finger, um, and, um, I was interested. I was interested in the in the subject of scientific heresy that she was talking about, um, and I didn't. I don't think I had um, what I've come to call gender wars on my radar at that point. And I read her chapter or chapters. I can't now remember about Ken Zucker um, uh, with my mouth open in astonishment because this was all almost entirely new to me. Um, so I think, and I think that was in about 2015. Um, uh, and looking back and, and what I've read since has made me feel quite shocked that I, 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 I'd been asleep for so long because, because um, I'm a discrimination lawyer. Um, I was aware of the um, uh, bringing into force of the uh, amendment to the Equality Act or uh, the um, Sex Discrimination Act, it was then, um, that brought in a prohibition on de- discrimination on grounds of gender reassignment in 1999 in the UK. And I was aware of the Gender Recognition Act, of course, coming in in 2004. And those things I was, yes, those those were on my radar as a as an employment and discrimination lawyer, but they were on my radar in a very dim and distant sense. I remember seeing, I I might've been to a talk on the 99 regulations, um, quite possibly by Anya Palmer, who I've now got to know quite well through through this debate and this campaign. 
Um, and she seemed to think that this was very interesting. This was a very interesting area. And I remember, I, I, I dimly remember being a little bit baffled and thinking it's terribly, terribly niche, isn't it? Um, uh, the, the number of people with the protected characteristic of gender reassignment um, is vanishingly small. And uh, the proportion of those of us, you know, I was in a room full of lawyers listening to a talk about this. And I, I remember vaguely thinking the proportion of those of us in this room who are ever actually going to encounter one of those cases um, is, is, is going to be correspondingly small. So really, why are we getting so excited about this very niche area of law? Um, so, so I didn't really engage. I didn't, I didn't properly engage with what the Gender Recognition Act did, what it sought to do, what it meant, um, or what the related provisions in the Sex Discrimination Act and subsequently the Equality Act, um, providing protection from discrimination on grounds of gender reassignment. I just didn't understand any of that. Um, I certainly, or you know, I understood it at some level as a discrimination lawyer. I knew it was there as a, as a tool in the toolbox um, and something that might, might very, very rarely pop up in practice. But I wasn't a, aware of it as a, a significant social or political issue at all. Um, so I think it was Alex, Alice Drager's book, Gal Galileo's Middle Finger, that, that got me started and, and, and started to open my eyes to, to what was going on, at least in the medical sphere. And then I think it was... Um, um, following feminists on Twitter, um, and I'm now not on Twitter in my own name. I, be, I began to think that it was it was um, too toxic an environment and too much of a time sink. Um, so I came off. Um, but um, I naturally gravitated when I was on in my own name, I naturally gravitated to some feminist lawyers. And again, Anya Palmer, I think, was, was very significant um, in, in bringing me up to speed because she's been, she's been well ahead um, of me on, on all these issues for a long time. I, I, I don't know if you know Anya. Um, um, she acted for, uh, how, well, is acting for Maya Forstatter, of course. Um, and um, she was also one of the um, very early full-time employees at Stonewall. Um, so, so she knows um, she knows the movement and she knows the political environment very well indeed. Um, so yes, and, and, and I think it's over about the last three, four years that I have um, become quite deeply engaged in this debate. And the more I've learned about it, the more, I, the more I've become horrified. Um, I think the thing that, I think the thing that, um, the, the single aspect that most engages me, although there are so many aspects that are grieving and angering and worrying, um, I think it's the sense of bully, a, a bullying orthodoxy. Um, that most gets my goat. Um, I don't like being told what I'm allowed to think. Um, that makes me really, really angry. So, so although there are more um, sort of viscerally enraging things like the um, like um, uh, the medical experimentation on children, which which is just horrifying, um, I think the thing that really sinks its hooks into me. Um, on this issue is the is the the kind of priggish um, uh, uh, bullying orthodoxy. Yes.
that's what sets off a lot of people, both men and women, not surprisingly. The men are getting it only recently. Mm. But what I find quite interesting about this, and this is where you come in as a barrister, how in the heck did it happen that gender identity was enshrined into law, women <laughs> were not invited to the table, mm. and like you... I'm someone who now with kids, I have less time to cover every single news media event but because I write about it. I spent the weekend investigating the assassination of the Haitian president last week, calling up a mercenary group in Miami, Florida, that possibly sent two men to kill the president. So I find myself very interested in what's happening in the world. If I can be interested in who assassinated the Haitian president how is it that we missed the 2004 mm. act that placed gender not only on the map, but that placed gender in a way that was antagonist entirely to women's and children's rights? And I say mm. this also as someone who is not heterosexual. What on earth is happening in the UK specifically, and even in a broader sense, that laws have been passed in multiple countries such that people are waking up saying, holy cow, this has gone on. How did we not know about it? Yeah, and I, did, I don't have an answer to that. Um, I, do, I certainly don't have a good or satisfactory answer to that. Um, I have perhaps a partial answer. Um, anyway, in my case, um, and I think this probably goes for quite a lot of people, um, which is that it was presented as very niche. And we bought that. Um, there was a lot of rhetoric in, um, in Parliament at the time of the Gender Recognition Act about what a tiny, tiny proportion of, of people this actually was who, who were transgender or, or transsexual, as the, the term was then. Um, and we were basically given to understand that it wouldn't, I mean, I, I suppose the, 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 the thing that made me sit in that talk thinking, why am I really, why am I, why, why are we all interested in this? Because it's not going to, it's not going to hit our desks as a practical issue. Um, yeah, we were sold the line that, that this didn't really matter because it, it was a little accommodation, you know, a little legal fiction, um, that was going to make life a bit easier for, um, for a very tiny minority of people living in very difficult circumstances. Um, and that's what we bought. I think that's what I bought. So I, so I just didn't look at it. I didn't, I did, it didn't, didn't snag my attention. I didn't think I've got to worry about this. I thought I haven't got to worry about this. It's, it's not really going to happen. And here we are. <laughs> that's it. We were all told that this well, first of all, we weren't told anything. We grew up in a mm. world where every so often we'd see a man in a dress. That's how, if you're a seven-year-old, and I say this because my daughter saw a man in a dress last year and said, Mommy, that's a man in a dress. And I'm like, yes. Mm. And <laughs> my daughter um, recognizes this when I'm working on this subject and looking at a video, and she'll say, he's wearing a dress. So um, of course, I've reported her to the UN <laughs> and she's on <laughs> yeah. trial shortly. But, you know, it's so Quite ridiculous right. that I or anyone else would want to school a child into reframing what they can yes. see with their eyes. Now, identity is the problem here, it seems to me, in the sense of how it's framed discursively within our society, 
within even academic language and within the law. So as a discrimination lawyer, you said you saw this as a niche area of law. Now, clearly, mm. I'm sure you've jumping to this very second from then to now, we see that this is really a Pandora's box to so yes. many issues. I was just watching someone, I, I'm saying this and I'm just shaking my head as I'm saying this, Matt Walsh, he's a right wing commentator who offers some of the most cogent and reflexive commentary on this subject. I watch him. I am watching people on the right having much more compassion about your and my rights and our issues are what we deem important. Anyways, and I'm a leftist, but this yeah. is entirely shocking to me to see how the left sold women's rights up the river. And to pay for that, we have to now preface every sentence with, but I believe in the rights of, okay, these are truisms. I don't know anyone who's a sentient person who wouldn't say that every single person, not just men who identify as transgender or women who identify as transgender, but everyone deserves the right to housing, to food, to gainful employment, etc. How is it that equality law seems to be stuck within this? Like, was this perhaps maneuvered in such a way consciously so that the two rights of women and those who identify as transgender would be forever in this whirlwind? Or is this a lack of insight in a sense in the way the law was written? Um, well, I, I want to wind back a little bit from there, actually, because although I have some serious issues with the way that the Gender Recognition Act um, is drafted and framed and the, and the language, especially the language it uses, I don't actually think the state of the law um, properly interpreted and properly understood in the UK at the moment is terribly bad. I think there are, there are bits that could be improved and I'd certainly like to make some changes to the Gender Recognition Act. Um, but actually the, the quite sophisticated and complex mechanisms by which the Equality Act seeks to protect um, trans um, people with a protected characteristic of gender reassignment. That's a terribly long-winded <laughs> expression, but I can't do much better. Um, um, the way that the um, Equality Act seeks to protect the rights of everyone um, and all those with all the diff nine different protected characteristics and the um, the way in which it carves out from protection from discrimination on grounds of gender reassignment um, and also carves out from the consequences of the legal fiction created by the Gender Recognition Act, um, a right to provide single-sex service and single-sex spaces for women where they're actually needed and, and in various ways to discriminate on grounds of sex, meaning biological sex, where it's justified, where it's plainly necessary to do so. Um, I think that, I think as long as you work through the complexities of the Equality Act and the exceptions in it um, properly and understand them properly and apply them properly, I think it works quite well. The problem is not nearly so much the state of the um, statute law in the UK at the moment um, as the manner in which it's being interpreted. Um, 
and specifically not the manner in which it's being interpreted in the courts because we haven't had yet um, very many cases on these on these questions um, but the manner in which it's being interpreted by institutions by HR departments by employers by um, government bodies and so on um, and that comes back to um, what I regard as a an astonishingly clever, sophisticated, and far-reaching uh, and long-term campaign by the um, the gender lobby. And the bit of that that I know most about is Stonewall, but 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 it's, it it has many other strands. Um, and that that campaign um, has been extraordinarily effective, and it's been a campaign of misinformation about the about the current state of the law. So so there's been this this twin track program, I think, from Stonewall in St with Stonewall and their allies. Um, on the one hand, to campaign for change in the law, so campaign for self gender self ID in the Gender Recognition Act. That's been the sort of um, a flagship campaign for a few years now um, but at the same time um, and and actually going on before long before that campaign came to a head uh, to tell the world that gender self-id was already the law um, and um, I think there's a sense in which attempting to get self-id actually written into um, the Equality Act, uh, so sorry, the yeah, the Gender Recognition Act um, was perhaps the gender campaign's first really big mistake in, in what up to that point had been a very, very sophisticated, subtle and clever campaign. Um, and I think they got, they got greedy um, and they overreached themselves. And when they tried for self-ID, um, which initially the Tories were all for because um, they've got their fingers burnt on on um, gay marriage and and th th those issues um, and they didn't want to be seen as the nasty party anymore um, so they were all for self-ID and then there was this big grassroots pushback from from mostly um, uh, new small feminist organizations in the UK and and those had a lot of success. Um, and a lot of women individually. I remember being part of Facebook groups years ago and there were letter writing mm. campaigns, raising complaints with the BBC because the lack of fair representation was and still is rife. But I have to wonder lately, okay, so we have the Rindorf report which states essentially what you've very well encapsulated that these lobby groups are saying that what is law is actually not what the law says. And on yes. the other hand, we've had the recent decision on prisons. Now, let's go back to your job of equalities law. Identity is understood by people as different things. For instance, there's a material reality to most identity. One is a person of color, one is black, one is bisexual, one is lesbian, etc. These are things that are, are verifiable to a large degree. Identity when it comes to gender, however, is a real stick in the wheels, as it were. 
because on the one hand, gender is a social construct. I know the gender lobby itself has tried to machinate the myth, making this a science that no, it's a reality. I just posted a, a paper yesterday. It's basically a, an opinion piece by a disgruntled scientist who's saying that none of the scientists have confirmed and none of the mm. science thus far confirms that there's a gendered brain. I also interviewed Gina Rippon, who states the same. There is no science to confer a gendered brain. So if there's no gendered brain and gender is a social construct, wouldn't gender identity hook itself into this very dangerous intersection between the way I see myself, Naomi, and the way you must see me? Now, the example I use quite often because I love cooking is that I'm the best cook in the world. If I go to my place of work, whatever that place is, it could be Goldsmiths, where I used to teach and say, I'm the best cook in the world. And my colleagues don't agree with me because I made a horrible sandwich that day and brought it to work and, and they just did not agree. To what limit is identity self-indulgement of the individual who wants to impose a certain kind mm. of religious orthodoxy upon others. Now, that I am a Canadian or that I could say, oh, that's xenophobic because I clearly don't have a British accent. Years ago, I was attacked on a bus in central London with my children by someone whom I believe was quite xenophobic. Well, that it could be debatable or not depending on the evidence given. But gender identity is something that there's A, no scientific evidence of. It's entirely based on feeling. So if I were to say and raise a complaint at my university because someone in my department, one of my colleagues said I am not the best cook in the world, what is to distinguish my feelings about my self-perception of being the best cook in the world from my enforcing amongst those same colleagues the idea that they must see me as a man because I like toying around with my car on Sunday mornings. Mm. Yeah, and, and that, 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 of course, is a very, very good question um, to which you're not going to expect me to have an answer because I agree <laughs> with you that there is no, there is no real difference. Um, you, we are not entitled to impose our beliefs, or we shouldn't be entitled to impose our beliefs about ourselves or our beliefs about the world on other people. Um, so, uh, so to my mind, there is no more, um, there is no more legitimacy in a um, trans person demanding that everyone see and refer to them, whether in their presence or not, um, and treat them, whatever that means, as being of the opposite sex. Uh, to the sex they are, um, then there is um, legitimacy in, in a demand you or I might make to be regarded as the best cook in the world or, um, uh, or queen or, um, uh, or, or whatever, whatever other um, fantasy we might, we might hold about ourselves. Most laws, in fact, I would even step that further back to the 1950s when John Money was busy making up the idea of gender identity. And not even science itself has been based on reaffirming a fantasy. 
I've asked psychiatrists, mm. I've asked therapists this. Is there any other example historically? I've studied Freud as well, but I've never seen an example in my lifetime or in the books I've read where the correct psychological treatment for a, for a delusion is, to, is for everyone to pretend to believe it. Exactly. I've never seen it. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, I think, I, to my mind, the, the, the best and clearest parallel is anorexia. Um, because it's quite close. It's, it's body dysmorphia. It's a, a fixed belief that one's body is wrong in some ways. Um, and in a way that is damaging to try to correct because um, an anorexic has a, has a fixed belief that mostly her body is much too large, needs to be made smaller by, um, by starving herself. Um, and we know what to do with that sort of delusion. We know what to do with that sort of mental condition. Um, we treat it as a mental problem. Um, and we try to save um, people with anorexia from the damage that they may cause themselves, the damage including, um, in, including fatality. Um, and yet, if we're met with adolescent, I mean, adolescent distress in, uh, in, in girls um, may take the form of anorexia or cutting or whatever's fashionable. And when it was anorexia, um, we knew what to do with it. When it was cutting, we knew what to do with it. And now there seems to be a huge surge in adolescent distress in girls being um, expressed as a desire to be a boy or a desire to flee womanhood or to, to not to develop into an adult woman. Um, and in, instead of treating that as the mental um, problem that it is, um, we, we affirm it. Um, and it's just jaw-dropping, um, a, a jaw-dropping dereliction of duty on the part of, um, uh, of the adults who should be protecting uh, adolescents from harming themselves, um, that instead we cheer them on. It's horrifying. How, how do you see that this has continued to be cheered on? For instance, what I was watching by Matt Walsh was his interview with Abigail Schreier, whose book is not only excellent, it, it needed to be written. There needs to be mm. more books written on this subject because it's quite horrifying that what is clearly a social trend is being ushered forth by the left. I can't even believe the world. I'm, I wake up some days and I'm thinking, what world is this that I'm watching? Yeah, these were my people. Yeah. I thought these were my people. Yeah, yeah. not only that, it's, I lost a really good friend of 25 years over this. He posted about three and a half years ago, the calendar boy in quotes for that year, which was a woman who transitioned medically. And I said to him, this is really sad. Someone has destroyed her body in the ethos of producing not only a stereotype, but a fiction. And he, made a really cruel comment and unfriended me, has not talked to me since 25 year in mm. real life friendship of a man who, mm. I mean, we all have friends with their issues, but this is someone who I had to somehow bite my teeth in the months after 9-11 while he was ranting about Arabs, ranting about the Arabic on the mm. bodega on the corner of his East Village street. And 
I was also having very uncomfortable discussions with the same person who himself, he was not, he's not white. And the Islamophobia that was rife in America after 9-11 was something that shocked me to the core because I was working with a disappeared community of Muslim men in Brooklyn. And I heard from various friends, accusatory comments about why are you doing this? Do you wanna become Muslim? Things like that. So I was absolutely blasted out of the universe emotionally by this disconnect between people who were supposed to be on the left because it wasn't just gender that made me see their not leftness. It was 9-11 is where it started for me to be quite honest. And even before then, I started to see, I mm. saw racism within the gay community in New York City, saw loads of it. I had so many experiences with it that I stepped away as well at certain points. Now, how is it that the historical materialism of the left, that, or what was supposed to be the left, has dissipated into this Plato politics of what do you identify as? And I forgot to produce your, your pronouns, Naomi. But this is it. <laughs> we've, we've been reduced to signatures with pronouns. We've been reduced to, and I, I took this up yesterday with uh, Be Beatrix Campbell as well. We, on the left, tend towards these knee-jerk reactions where everything is now cis-sexist in those people's camps, or even I see a lot of people I agree with overusing the terms of xenophobia, racism, and homophobia. I wonder if maybe this isn't a bit of payback against the left for having not been clear in our terminology in the past, or perhaps not engaging with those we disagree with in other subjects mm. on the right. And I'm I'm just asking this quite matter-of-factly because I don't have answers myself. But it strikes me, like you too, I spoke with Alice Drager when she had just published her book and because she had a lot of blowback from trans advocates mm. and she even stepped back again and again on certain issues because that can be quite fierce to one's career. Yeah. So how is it that we've got Anya Palmer having to go to bat for women's rights that a hundred years ago would not have even been questioned. Women were fighting 110 years ago for the right to vote, but no one would have debated the difference between a man and a woman, ironically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this question, this, this sort of where did this come from question um, is one that has teased me um, um, persistently. Um, for however many years it is now that I've been seriously involved in this debate, um, what are the real what are what are the real drivers? What are, what's the engine? Where's the energy coming from for this extraordinary? I mean, it is there's a sense in which I feel privileged, and in a, a, a rather dark and and unhappy sense in which I feel privileged, in the sense that these really are interesting times. Um, you have to give it that because um, it is a surprise. It is an extraordinary thing that in the um, 21st century, um, having grown up and been educated in scientific rationality and, um, a, 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 and an assumption that we'd left magical thinking and witchcraft and, um, and superstition behind us, um, we are 
suddenly in the most extraordinary uh, wave of science denialism and, and magical thinking. Um, and also, um, uh, uh, yes, also the same, at the same time, a feeling that we're not, we're not just rooted in rational. I mean, I grew up thinking that everyone was basically rational and sens all sensible people believed in evolution and knew that the world was round and believed in gravity and, and all that. Um, and also that we were all more or less at one on, on fundamental small L liberal values um, that of free speech and freedom of conscience and so on. And suddenly all of that is being rolled back before our eyes. Um, and we have a, a quasi-religious orthodoxy under which um, we are own, we're not allowed to believe. We're not, allow, we're not allowed to dissent from this secular religion of gender, which is obviously scientifically cuckoo and deranged. Um, and yet, um, and yet the people we grew up with in the same environment, the same rationalist liberal environment who are running our workplaces, wearing suits, talking, <laughs> talking our language, um, having had the same sort of educational background as us. Um, and suddenly they are fully signed up seemingly um, to this bizarre mystical cult. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting. Um, and I don't know where it comes from. And I, I've puzzled and puzzled about what gives it its real driving engine. Um, and it would be nice, it would be neat to be able to say there is one thing, there is, there's, there's one force that's really giving it this power that has allowed it um, so much traction. And I can't think of anything. I can think of a number of different things that have fed into it. I think old fashioned misogyny is part of it. It is sort of old fashioned and new fashioned misogyny because, because it's understandable. And I think there is a real phenomenon um, of left-leaning men feeling a, 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 an un, a sort of underlying resentment at being cast as the villain, villains in the male-female power dynamic and being told to check their privilege and so on. So there's a, there's a sort of simmering resentment there of, of okay, I know I'm in the dominant class and, um, and I need to check my privilege and, I, and women's rights matter and I've got to pay lip service to that, but actually um, it's a bit annoying. Um, and I'm being asked to give up privilege and, and who likes that. So there's, so there's maybe a background um, of that sort of resentment. And then along comes this movement that gives a certain sort of um, left-leaning male um, a delicious excuse um, to, um, to pick up a big stick and beat women with it. Um, especially feminist women, nasty, nasty, noisy, shouty, angry, gender critical feminist women, and suddenly they can take up the moral high ground against women. And what's not to like about that? So I think there's something I think. Yeah. So I think there's a strand of misogyny. I think there is a strand of um, really, really sinister um, 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 profit motive um, in that a um, 
a successfully trans medically trans child will be a medical patient for life. Um, and that's a money tree. Um, and I don't know a great deal about this, but I've, I've read um, Abigail Schreier and, um, and I think if you look at the numbers, the way the numbers of gender clinics in the States especially have ballooned, um, there's quite a lot to suggest that this is, this is a big and, and lucrative industry. So money talks. So that's a strand. I don't believe, I don't believe that this whole thing has been generated as a, as a, a money generating um, conspiracy by big pharma or big, big medicine. But, but I think there's a strand that it's very convenient that it's a way of creating medical patients for life. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I was going to say that there's something going on here in terms of ideology as well in the sense of you mentioned how the conservative party jumped on this and with maria miller we saw the pushing of transgender ideology women addressed this with her they they wrote her they met with her finally it took a lot of writing to get to meet with mm, her yeah women started to meet with tory mps as well women from the left yeah. from labor this was just four years ago, something that no one could push very hard on because the media was completely against even running these stories. So it took the Spectator and the Times. It wasn't yeah. the Guardian. It still isn't the Guardian. The Guardian came out with a statement two years ago, then they more fox and owl pieces. And they recently, there was the, well, it wasn't even a Guardian piece. There was the expose on the, political troubles at the top of the Guardian because of this. And they've seen they've lost readership. They've had many leftist women take up subscriptions with their frenemies in, uh, in publishing. But then I would say similar to how the Tories have fought back against their legacy, their terrible legacy during the 1980s, they took this up unthinkingly realized it was a cock up, have stepped back, threw this out into the long grass as it were. And I think the leftists who've jumped on this are unwilling to, and there's many reasons why. One is if Trump said it, we're gonna say the opposite. That's what's happening right now in the States. Biden is a very ineffective leader. He's a horrible leader. In many ways, he's further to the right than Trump ever was. Uh, people hate me for saying this, but it's actually provable. <laughs> He's a terrible president. He's even incoherent if you saw his stunt yesterday. Now, people who voted for him, I did not. I didn't vote this election. <laughs> I couldn't make a choice. I just thought if I have to vote for Trump, which is the logical person to vote for given oh. what women are facing, because <laughs> um, we've got the pussy grabber on the one hand yeah. and we have the man yeah. who doesn't want to admit that women have pussies. So that's our choice. <laughs> so yeah. I didn't. The issue now is that 
people on the quote unquote left, and these are largely neoliberals who think Biden's a great president, they will never concede anything that Trump said or did. So women's rights are screwed right now in the US. And I'm very worried about where we're allowing for the shark to be jumped, because as you've just stated, these are fictions that are being imposed. These are delusions. But at the same time, if the prison system in the UK cannot recognize a complete contradiction in terms, if men who dress as women are safer with women, then why aren't they doing more? This is my first question to them to protect not only men who dress as women, but gay men. We know that these are the two groups who are raped first and foremost within prisons, effeminate heterosexual men as well, but that is not being understood or addressed. And what on earth is the prison system doing, thinking that anyone can self-ID, therefore women who were separated from men in the first place for their safety are now suddenly just as safe with a man who is or is not a rapist who identifies as a None of this makes sense, not on a logical, no. like philosophy 101 level. No. What is happening that you've got that on the one hand, and then in your domain, you have the judge's bench book, which I don't know if you read my article on this. It's footnoted with Stonewall. It's yeah. Stonewall is footnoted all throughout it. Yeah. Dozens of it's times, crazy. not not two, dozens of times. So that's a, a handbook that's informed by an organization that if we are to go with the Reindorf report is a flawed institution in how it doles out imprecise, inaccurate, irresponsible legal mm. advice. So that organization is footnoted throughout the judge's handbook. Yeah. And it's quite shocking. I've just been rereading the Employment Appeal Tribunal judgment in, um, in Forstatter. Um, it is quite shocking in what accepting terms the judge in that case um, refers to the bench book as if, as if it's pretty much beyond reproach. Um, I, think there is, I think there is quite a frightening mechanism, and I think this is something that the gender lobby has exploited extraordinarily cleverly. Um, and they have, they, it, it, I think it's noticeable that they haven't, they haven't um, mounted a big campaign in general. There have been a few test cases, but in general, things haven't been advanced through test cases in the courts um, on, the, on the trans um, ideology side. Um, things have been advanced by much more by stealth. Um, and one of the very clever stealth mechanisms um, is to go around behind, not present the arguments in court, because if you present arguments in court, you can expect judges to treat them with skepticism because that's what they do, that's what they're trained to do, that's what all their in instincts um, are, are attuned to. Somebody stands up in front of you in court, makes an argument, you pull it apart. If you can, you see where its weak points are. Um, so, so they don't present the arguments in court. They present them as if they're just, um, uh, things that ever, all right-thinking people already believe um, in material that is called training. And judges are human beings and they're suggestible like other human beings and they are biddable and obedient like other human beings and they are hierarchical like other human beings. And if you put them in a, high, a, a position um, lower down the hierarchy and you, uh, and I, I forget which, which hugely senior judge 
um, it was, but, 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 but somebody terribly distinguished remarked that in the law, you are always a new boy of one sort or another. So there is always this danger of feeling at the bottom of a hierarchy being vulnerable to groupthink, because even if you're a court of appeal judge, you're the most recent appointee to the court of appeal. So you're in awe of the people who've been there much longer. Um, even if you're a Supreme Court judge, you're not, um, you're not the, the president of the Supreme Court or you're the newest recruiter and so on. So, so wherever you are, however distinguished your career, you're always going to feel uh, um, that there are people more important than you who can tell you what to think. So you place judges in a, in a learning situation um, and you tell them that the stuff that you're giving them is training. And I think it bypasses their critical faculties. Um, and it just, it, it passes straight into the category of stuff they think they know, um, instead of the sort of stuff that they have to hold up to the light and prod and pull apart and challenge. Um, and I think, um, crumbs I've had for years, I've had ever since I read about it as a teenager, I've had a be in my bonnet about the Milgram experiment um, and the, um, the shocking extent to which people will do what they're told by people they see as being in authority over them. And one of the things that I found most striking um, in um, Milgram's own account of, of, of the, the, the various variations, the, the variations that he ran on the experiment um, is the one where he, in plain sight of the subjects of the experiment, he reversed the roles. Um, so, sorry, I'm talking about the Milgram experiment as if everyone knows, and not necessarily everyone knows all about the things that I've had being these in my bonnets about um, forever. This is the um, this is the experiment about obedience, where the setup was that the subjects of the experiment were told that they were um, investigating the efficacy of pain as a stimulus to improve learning. Um, what, of course, they were really investigating was their own, what was really being investigated was their willingness to obey orders to inflict pain. So the, um, so the subjects were apparently divided into two groups, um, trainers and, um, and students, and the students had to do a task and the trainers had to inflict electric shocks on them um, if they got the task wrong. Um, and the investigation was supposed to be to find out whether the uh, electric shocks um, incentivized learning so that the students did better. Now, of course, unbeknown to the um, subjects of the experiment, um, the ones who seemed to be being randomly selected as students um, to have to, to be tortured into um, into doing better in the uh, in the tasks um, were in fact actors. Um, who were respond and, and the electric shock giving machine was complete fake with lots of fancy scary wires coming out of it but doing absolutely nothing. Um, so, so what you're investigating is how far the subjects of the experiment would go in turning up the dial on the fake electric shock machine um, under instruction by a man in, by a man in a white coat. Um, and the shocking answer was, um, knots would go all the way to the point of, of, of um, screaming agony and or, or, um, terror and even seeming unconsciousness and, and, and real risk to life. Um, 
Um, so it's a so it's a shocking demonstration of of the extent to which ordinary randomly selected individuals will just do what they're told if they're put in a setup where um, it seems that they ought to, or there are various things that suggest to them that they ought to. Now, one of the most shocking variations on that experiment to me um, was the one where um, the authority figure, um, there, were, there, there, was a, there was a variation where in plain sight of the real subjects of the experiment, um, the authority figure seemed to be randomly plucked from the ranks of the experimental subjects. I can't remember exactly how that was contrived, but um, I think the man in the white coat just didn't turn up or oh, we, we need someone to run this experiment and, and uh, can we just grab one of you? Will you do it? Something like that. So it was obvious that everyone started with the same status and, and, and the status of experimenter, the status of person with authority was conferred quite arbitrarily on one of this group of peers or apparent peers. Um, and even then, um, you got, the, so, so the authority seemed to come from nowhere and seemed to not really belong to the, um, to the person now, now in the white coat. And even then, um, levels of obedience were alarmingly high. Um, and what I think, um, what I think that's an example of, I'm, I'm not going to say what that demonstrates, because I think lots and lots of other things demonstrated too, but I think the power of, it, the power of assumed roles is, is very um, great. And human beings are very given to um, getting into role and then staying in role. And if you set up a situation in which there is a, even a very temporary and artificial hierarchy, um, while it lasts, for some reason we are hypnotized by it. I used to do a, I used to do a, a talk, um, and I don't know why, I, I haven't been asked to do it for a few years, and it has crossed my mind to wonder if I've been dropped for it because I'm now a known bigot. Um, I used to do a talk for, um, for the Judicial College, I think, or, or anyway, for, I'm not sure exactly for whom, but I used to do a talk for employment judges. Um, on an event called the social context of judging where they got a, a load of different speakers and I was one of them and I used to talk to them about um, confirmation bias and um, and um, uh, 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 and the extent to which witnesses and claimants were um, outgunned and how much they shouldn't how how uh, how they shouldn't get too excited about witnesses lying to them. Um, you know, they should be astute to detect lies, but they shouldn't regard lying as a terrible moral failing because um, it's what human beings do when they feel outgunned and, and overpowered. And the whole setting of an employment tribunal um, or any court or tribunal puts the judge very firmly at the top of the hierarchy and makes the judge someone who will be treated by everyone else in the room with a deference verging sometimes on awe. Um, so there's a very steep power gradient in a courtroom or tribunal. Um, and it's temporary and artificial and, you know, mix the people up and get them doing something different and different power relations will emerge. But in a courtroom, it's pretty rigid. Um, and something I used to say on that training event was, but, you know, and I'm usually an advocate, so I'm down the hierarchy from you lot, but look what's happening here. I'm standing in front of you today. I'm 
I'm the trainer or the lecturer and you're my students and you are sitting respectfully listening to what I say. Um, and the power gradient is the opposite way around. Um, and this is, you know, this is a demonstration of the power of assumed roles. Um, so you need to be aware of that as a judge. Um, and why did I start on that rant about the power of assumed roles? Oh yes, why, this is why I think it's so clever of the gender lobby to have got their um, influence, to have, to have exerted influence over judicial training. Because I think the power of assumed roles means that judges are much more respectful of training than they are of advocates in court. So that's a good way to get dodgy claims past them, a much better way to get dodgy claims past them than by trying them out in court and meeting rational argument. Well, this is also astonishing that we have people like Maria McLaughlin who are being told by judges to refer to their yeah. aggressor as she. And yes. in what right can a British judge instruct someone to effectively lie? I, I yeah. have to wonder about the constitutionality of, of such a direction. I think that was extraordinary, yeah. I take that further in the sense of, since the judge's handbook is littered with references and it's clearly been schooled by Stonewall, mm. Where can we reproach this handbook and demand an FOI? First of all, we need an FOI about who informed the writing of that, what groups were invited to the table, how, why. Did Stonewall have a weekend retreat for judges? Mm. I really was so outraged when I started to read the handbook and see how it has been so informed by them. But it goes yeah. far beyond that. I have a piece coming out shortly about journalism in the UK and the way that the NUJ and IPSO have been informed about how to refer and how I, as a journalist, should refer to men or women who identify as. It's, it's shocking because what there is, if you go back far enough, there was a, a document entitled Transsexual People and the Press collected opinions from transsexual people themselves. Prepared on behalf, I'm reading from the document of transsexual people in the United Kingdom by Christine Burns. Mm. This is a trans rights campaigner and educator yeah. who wrote on behalf of Press for Change. This was November, 2004. The mm -hmm. document is 38 pages long. It includes a strategy to get entities on board with schooling, journalists and writers as to how to speak about them. Since when does any group have the right to tell journalists or mm. unions or like judges. the NUJ yeah. to refer to them in a certain way? Mm. It's, it's unprecedented. It's extraordinary. So we're seeing this kind of red carpet being extended to this particular lobby in ways that no other group is afforded. Now, I'm referring back to what you wrote for Legal Feminist. You referred me, in fact, to your submission and compliance piece. Can you talk about that and how submission and, submission and compliance has had the most impact on this debate? Yes, I mean, it's, 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 it's difficult for me to gauge how much um, impact it, it feels to me as if it has had quite a lot um, or possibly the thing that 
um, the thing that followed it, which was the, um, the FOIA camp, the Freedom of Information campaign. Um, and it, it came about in, in quite a sort of sideways way because we were getting ready to launch Sex Matters and, um, and uh, we needed to um, produce a number of pages on the website about the various contexts in which sex matters, sex matters in sports, sex matters in medicine, sex matters in um, um, various specific contexts, sex matters in law. So it fell to me to write the sex matters in law page, which was quite a short piece of writing. I think I can't, can't remember, it's something like two or 300 words, so really quite brief. Um, but researching that, um, I started to look at um, the extent to which um, gender, the gender creed had penetrated into our legal institutions. Um, and in the course of that, I looked at the list of, um, the full list of Stonewall diversity champions that they used to maintain on their website. And as I looked down it and specifically drew up a list of the um, significant legal institutions that were the Stonewall diversity champions, um, I became more and more shocked because the, the, the job really seemed to be so complete. Um, the, the CPA, the Crown Prosecution Service, the Ministry of Justice, the government legal department, um, pretty much every police force in the country. I think actually every at the time police force in the country, a couple, I think one or two have fallen away now. Um, I hope a lot more are reconsidering. Um, and it just became very clear to me that the, um, the whole legal landscape was infused with this. Um, and so that was shocking and eye-opening. Um, so before I managed to write my 300 words or whatever it was for the website, I started, I found myself writing that long article, Submission and Compliance, in, and, and I was hugely helped by the, um, somebody had done a Freedom of Information request to Edinburgh University, and Edinburgh had um, given an honest response to it and had produced, had, had made public their submission to the Stonewall Workplace Equality Index um, and Stonewall's feedback on that submission for I think two years. Um, and so that put that that FOIA request of a couple of years ago um, put an enormous amount of, of really telling information into the public domain and allowed allows you to see the kind of detail um, in which um, both the detail and the breadth of Stonewall's um, control of the organizations that they sign up as champions or which they persuade to um, submit to the Workplace Equality Index. Um, and one of the most shocking things about that, I mean, it's been said from time to time, and Stonewall have said, and it was said in court in the CPS challenge um, to Stonewall, to CPS's membership of the Stonewall scheme. It was said, oh, it's, it's just a, an HR, um, an employee relations, the, 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 the schemes are just a matter of employee relations. It's about employers treating their workforces um, properly, treating um, trans and or people with the protected characteristic of gender reassignment 
um, equally and making sure they are sensitive to their needs. And it's not about the manner in which they perform their public functions. And therefore it's not amenable to judicial review. Um, and if you look at the detail of the Edinburgh submission, you can see it's absolutely um, intended and calculated um, to affect not just their employee relations, but also every aspect of their operation, including their dealings with external clients, customers, stakeholders, service users, whatever. Um, so, so yes, I read, I read all that information from Edinburgh and I um, looked into the extent of, of Stonewall, um, Stonewall's interference in public life. I wrote submission and compliance, um, um, <laughs> raging about that and, um, and, and also jeering at it, because I think, I do think it is, um, I think it is humiliating. I think what Stonewall has persuaded um, serious grown up people wearing suits to go through um, in the way of, of um, uh, demonstrating their submission. That's why I called the piece submission and compliance, but, but, but the, the, um, the sort of ritual behaviors of, of performance of submission to Stonewall's creed and Stonewall's authority um, do strike me as humiliating. Um, and I think it's not merely, not merely shocking, um, but also ridiculous that, um, that these organizations that, that are these important um, organizations that, 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 that have such serious roles are submitting to, um, to those indignities. So, so it was quite an angry article. Um, and by the time I finished writing it, I was furious. Um, and what I did next was to write a blog saying, right then, let's, let's find out more about this. That's the Edinburgh Freedom of Information request was one, but there are 850 employers on Stonewall's Workplace Equality Index, of which I forget what number, um, sorry, on, on their list of champions, of which I forget what number are public authorities. So let's do a mass campaign. Let's send a freedom of information request to every single Stonewall champion that is a public authority and just find out what the extent of Stonewall's influence on public life is. Um, and I didn't really expect very much. I don't know what I exactly I did expect. I kind of launched that campaign in a fit of bad temper one afternoon um, on the back of having written submission and compliance. I didn't I didn't really think about what what would happen next, except I think I vaguely assumed that it might get out some inf interesting information. You know, other people might do a couple of dozen um, FOIA requests, and then probably I would go back and look at what had been done and, and mop up any more that I thought were really important, like the Ministry of Justice and, and the um, um, Government Legal Department and, you know, one or two others. Um, and that would be that. And um, hundreds of angry mums netters, or dozens at least, of angry mums netters seems to, seem to have jumped on it. Um, and it went like a train. It's been extraordinary. I don't know how many FOIA requests there have been now of this nature to public authorities. And there was a little, a little sort of side tussle with um, the people who run whatdotheyknow.com, which is a really um, 
useful, helpful website that makes it um, easy to do FOIA requests in a transparent way and put all the information straight in the public domain straight away. And also, um, and it's quite a good way of, of minimizing, I think, the, um, the nuisance factor to public authorities in getting multiple requests, because if you do your request on whatdotheyknow.com, it's there for the whole world to see. So if you're thinking of making a request, one of the early things that you should do is go on to whatdotheyknow.com and see if anyone has already done it and the information's out there, because if so, you don't need to do it. So it's a good way of, of minimizing duplicate requests. And I made an attempt to make quite conscious use of that feature of it, um, by putting a hashtag onto my campaign, which was um, don't submit to Stonewall. And there was, I think, a, um, um, a campaign of complaints about that to the people who run whatdotheyknow.com and they took the hashtag off. So it's now quite, it's now more difficult to search the site for um, requests that are part of that campaign. But when I last looked, there was something over 900, I think. My campaign, I think, has been the big mass one, but there have been lots of other individual and very good and very um, probing FOIA requests. And I, I mean, the result of the mass campaign has been an enormous data dump um, of, of because I mean, some of the public authorities that have received these requests have um, given one of a, a number of fairly formulaic excuses um, which we think are being fed to them by Stonewall. It's pretty clear being fed to them by Stonewall in some cases um, about commercial confidentiality or, or um, cost, or you know, there, there are various defenses in the, in the act that allow um, public authorities not to respond. Um, and they've been making use of various of those. Um, but some of them haven't, and some of them have just been providing the answers, and there have been so many requests that even with quite a lot of them being um, knocked back, um, also quite a lot of them have been responded to quite fully, and the result is a lot of data in the public domain, which the press are now starting to make good use of. Um, and I think that has contributed at least to um, the flurry of... Um, of press coverage in the UK of the extent of Stonewall capture of our institutions that there's been over the last couple of months. Well, is there a way to hold the judiciary responsible, such as the dozens of references it makes in the judge's handbook to Stonewall? Because it's one thing, we can go after NGOs like Stonewall and Mermaids, and at this point, they're becoming quickly low-hanging fruit. I have to wonder why, and, and I suggested this on Twitter the other day, why are NGOs, private entities, having a sit down at the table with elected officials without mm. this being made transparent, without data being put up even minutes of the meeting? Because the whole yeah. mess dating back to the 2004 Gender Recognition Act goes back to the idea of how women were completely elided in the process. So that when I talked to feminists like Julia Long, she said, well, I was talking about this way back then. Well, I'm in the gay community as well. And I had no clue that this was happening, not just in the UK, this was happening in other countries. We yeah. were out of the loop purposefully. So you would have a collusion with certain governments and that meaning all governments, whoever's in power to allow at the table interested parties and NGOs, charities, to direct public policy. These are not elected bodies, but 
These are backdoor conversations that are affecting us. And the leaders that people have elected into power are being unduly influenced. There's yeah. no accountability there. How can this be made better? The Equal Treatment Bench book is certainly um, one of the things that, that um, various people are starting to think quite hard about. Um, I don't know if you saw Tom Chacko's um, very good report for, I've forgotten the name of the, um, of the, the body, um, uh, I think, tank, Policy Exchange, um, which I hope may be quite influential um, in some circles anyway. Um, there are various freedom of information requests um, in, at various stages about the Equal Treatment Bench Book and the Judicial College. Um, so there will be um, there will be challenge to the secrecy in which um, the training of judges is conducted at the moment. Um, and interestingly, um, at the moment, that's being defended on the basis of the sanctity of judicial independence, um, <laughs> which is ironic because um, if judicial independence means freedom to um, get into a huddle behind closed doors with lobbyists and listen to what they say and um, and be be told what to think by them um, without anybody else being allowed to know what's being said. Um, I don't think that's the sort of independence that we should be cherishing. Um, so so yes, there will be there will be um, more freedom of information requests. There will be. Um, lobbying. Um, there will be various attempts, I think, to um, to get some traction on the equal treatment bench book by various different routes. Um, but but I to my mind that is that is quite an important part of the campaign because because um, uh, capturing judges is um it, the, the capture of judges that's been performed by the um by the gender activists um is a very important and clever part of their strategy and um is likely to be damaging and we saw we saw an example of the results of it um in the forstata case at first instance which again i suspect i i suspect that was in fact um, a significant own goal. I think that was another instance of overreach, like the attempt at um, getting gender self-ID written into the law. I think the first instance judgment in Forstatter um, was an extraordinary, um, extraordinarily arrogant and overconfident bit of judicial activism. And I think it um, astonished and alarmed and galvanized an awful lot of um, people who, who hadn't previously had this on their ra radar. It certainly, um, it, it certainly put extra fuel, a lot of extra fuel into my tank um, on this campaign because, because I had, um, I read a judgment that was written by someone I think of as a, a sort of distant, a distantly friendly colleague, you know, someone I've known for years and slightly uh, an acquaintance, you know, a professional acquaintance, not a professional friend, but a definite professional acquaintance, someone I'd say hello to if I bumped into him in the street and, uh, and have sat in a room with and sat on committees with and, you know, generally and <laughs> gone for a drink with and generally been on, on friendly civilised terms with. 
and and thought of as as being all part of the same and what I was talking about earlier all part of the same rational vaguely left liberal consensus um scientific rationality headspace um or cultural um space um and suddenly this person who felt for years has always felt like a member of my tribe um is writing a judgment telling me that my views and i can't put a cigarette paper between my views and my four status on on these matters um, so that judgment felt really personal to me. This is someone who had felt for years like a member of my tribe, writing down in black and white that my views are so repulsive and so hateful that they're not worthy of respect in democratic society. Um, that is powerfully motivating. That, I mean, that is probably the one thing that really tipped me over from being a bit shocked and scandalized by what was going on to wanting to throw myself into the campaign because that's intolerable, that's infuriating.